You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Tony Duchesne here. Welcome to Drinks with Tony. This week on the show, we have Wayne Hoffman. Um, and the other thing I was going to tell you was, hey, you're probably listening because you're a fan of writing and you're a fan of reading writers. And sometimes you need a nudge. Sometimes you need a coach. Sometimes you need someone to help you, Rocky. Uh, and so ping me. Go to TonyDuchesne.com. I um, do personal coaching for novels and screenplays, specifically because I've been teaching them and do and writing them for many, many years. So TonyDuchesne.com, if you'd like a little nudge um, or if you're even at idea stage. I've worked with clients across the board even on final edits of final, final, final edits that get published. More, more than self-published. All right. Enjoy the show. Hi, this is Wayne Hoffman, and you are listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Wayne Hoffman. He wrote the book, The End of Her. Racing Against Alzheimer's to Solve a Murder. Hi, Wayne. Hello there. Um, I got to say, I tried to write and I, so I, I worked on, <laughs> let's talk, I, I don't mean to talk about me, but this relates to your book. I was working on a, I was working on a book about my grandmother's suicide a few years before I died and working on okay. it for about a year. My therapist was like, I think you might need to stop working on that book. You're, you're not doing well. So how do you do this? <laughs> and how do you get, how do you get from this, you know, working through this and actually getting it published when I just had to throw it, throw it away and couldn't look at it anymore. <laughs> there, it helped that there are sort of two pieces to the story. So the one that was my great grandmother's murder, which happened in 1913 in Winnipeg, that happened more than a century ago. Uh, I'm connected to her, but not, you know, I didn't know her. Obviously she died decades before I was born. So looking into that horrible event, I, I could be a little bit more dispassionate because although we were related, I didn't know her. The other half of the book is about my mother's Alzheimer's and that unfortunately, you know, I had to sort of stare it in the face anyway, whether I was writing the book or not, there was no way to look away. It's been more than a decade now. She is still with us and not doing well. Uh, but as long as I was going through it, in some ways writing it was helpful. Writing the book was helpful because I could organize my thoughts and my feelings and sort of step back from the personal interactions. And, and the book took years to write. There are whole periods where I stopped writing or I stopped researching and just focused on my mother. And then times when there wasn't much to focus on with my mother because now she's in a home, she's being taken care of. We don't really communicate, she doesn't really talk. So I could sort of step back and focus on the memories and go back through emails and old letters and try to reconstruct how we got where we are. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, uh, it's, a tr it's, I feel like everything we do, you know, even just as humans, is trying to make sense of our tragedies, <laughs> you know, how, how do we, how do, how do we shuffle this in our brain kind of thing? 
yes, and, and part of, uh, especially a family story, even though we're going through it with other family members and, and friends of the family and chosen families, mm -hmm. we don't often stop and sort of check in with everybody to see, what do you think we're going through? How are you feeling? Which part of this is hardest on you? Uh, we, we don't really do that. So you kind of know what you're going through, although even, even there, after a decade, some of it gets lost in the mists of memory. But to, to try to make sense of it wasn't just about going through my own memories and emails and trying to remember what order did these things happen in? Were these two events close together or far apart? It was also about literally interviewing my family, interviewing my brother, my sister, my father, my aunt, dozens of cousins, friends of the family, to find out what they had gone through and where they were in some of this process. And I know already from talking to certain family members who have read the book, what they'll say to me is, I'd forgotten all about this part. <laughs> or yeah. sometimes I remember this differently, uh, but often it's whole chunks of the narrative you either forget or repress because they're traumatic. And so you've forgotten about them. What I hope I, I was able to recover were, there were also elements <clears throat> that were funny, not because Alzheimer's is funny because it's not <laughs> funny, but because my mother was funny. Yeah. Uh, and so a lot of her journey was, there, there were funny moments in there and I don't want those to get lost as we focus on the horrors of Alzheimer's. There, also, there were moments in there that, that cracked me up at the time and that cracked me up in retrospect. Isn't it weird? The beauty that's also <laughs> the beauty that's out there. It kind of hits us sometimes. And we're like, Oh, wait a second. Yes. I mean, fortunately for my mother, at least when she was in the moderate stages of Alzheimer's, there were when she knew what was happening to her, there were moments where even she would just stop and laugh because she understood what was happening. There, there's a moment I talk about in the book where it's the last trip we took together, we went to Montreal. I live in New York, my parents live outside DC. We used to travel a lot together. And I wanted to try one more, one more trip. And Montreal's not very far, but it feels like a big trip. You have different currency, different language, different architecture, different food. So we went to Montreal for the weekend. My parents stopped in my apartment on the way to Montreal. I live in a studio apartment alone and my mother comes out of my bathroom with three toothbrushes in her hand. Two that she's taken out of her toiletry kit and one that she's taken off my sink. And she says, which of these toothbrushes is yours? <laughs> and I said, now that they're all in your hand, I have no idea. I don't know what color my toothbrush is. It's the only toothbrush in the apartment. Uh, now, that now that you've picked up all three of them, we have to throw all three in the garbage and go buy three new ones, which we did. She understood at that moment that this was Alzheimer's related and also very, very funny. And we just stood there and laughed about it. Fortunately, it's easily solved. Toothbrushes are readily available. But those, those were the moments I didn't want to lose as we sort of slide into the, the worst parts of the disease. Yeah, <clears throat> I, feel like I, I feel like I can do that without a disease. Um, I could do something that it's just like <laughs> I that's where the that, that's probably where some of the humor is it's like oh my god that's I, I probably would have done that too <laughs> just, right I, you know I I think I, I can get rattled enough where I would do something like that while I'm traveling just normally you know right it's it's how we get through getting rattled in life right how to <laughs> you have to stop and laugh sometimes yeah
It might, it must have been. I mean, there's there's something cool about just really engaging with your family on that much of an intimate level. To to it's it was probably a blessing for you and for everyone that you were doing the book. Yeah, it really gave uh, me, but also all of us, an excuse to go back over things. And some of them were things where you say, "Oh, right, I'd forgotten about that horrible time." Thanks for reminding me. Yeah. But mostly, it was about going back over things and saying, oh, right, now I remember it makes sense. Like there, there is a narrative through line. It wasn't a series of random horrible events. It was a, a whole process that's been going on for more than a decade. And if you want to remember how, how we got here and what we all went through, well, now I've collected it. And it's not just my memories, it's, it's all of our memories that I've tried to put together. Yeah. When, what, and <clears throat> what's it like diving into this? <clears throat> Um, after working on novels and working on fiction? So, you know, I've always had a sort of split life as a writer because I'm a journalist during the day. I'm a magazine editor and I've been a, a journalist for, I mean, I'm in my 50s now and I was doing it since I was 18. So that's a very, very Wait, long time. Yeah, so, so, so with that much time in journalism, what about the changes of journalism? Like, I because I, I used to write for the San Francisco Chronicle and I wasn't like a hard journalist or anything, but... I saw, I saw things and went, oh my God, I'm not liking this as much anymore. <laughs> Journalism has, has changed a lot. Um, there's still, there's still good places to do good work. I like to think I work at one of them. Um, but one of the things that has changed, certainly as we've gotten away from print and more to online, almost exclusively, where I, the magazine edit is entirely online, that only speeds up the metabolism of journalism, which is already very fast. You have an idea, then you start researching and writing about it, often simultaneously. It's edited, it's posted, and you're on to the next story. That could be a day. And yeah. you don't look back because you're on to the next project. Writing novels, uh, first of all, it takes years to write a novel. Uh, some people do it faster than I do. I don't know how they do it, but I don't either. Here's <laughs> to write a novel. Yeah. But also, no one really is, no one's waiting at the, other, at the other end. With journalism, you have a deadline. Your story has to come out. When it was in print, it'd be there's a, a page of the paper that's waiting for your story. Um, when it's online, it's, we're waiting for your story to fill our content hole for the day. With a novel, no one's waiting for it. Literally, no one's waiting for it. Your agent isn't waiting for it. Your publisher's not waiting for it. Your readers aren't waiting for it. Until it comes out, no one cares. So if you're six it months humbles you. It humbles you. It doesn't make any difference. You're incredibly important to the world. So a novel, you have really as much time as you want or need to work on it because no one really cares if you ever finish it, to be blunt. It's the opposite of journalism. So... I've been working in those two very different arenas for the last 20 years. I've been a journalist more than 30 and been writing novels for 20. Um, this was the first time I could try to bring the two things together, which is to say, work on a, no a piece of nonfiction. Much of it is basically journalistic research, especially into my great-grandmother's murder in 1913. It was a matter of going through police records and census reports and going to the scene of the crime and interviewing people who might have might have histories of the area and looking for old photographs and going to the cemetery where she's buried and really like digging and going through old newspaper reports. That was really, that's journalism, except mm -hmm. I didn't have a deadline. It was, gave me the ability 
to do what I do every day as a journalist, except without a deadline, which is something you never get a chance to do as a journalist. And first of all, it's invigorating to really be able to take as much time as you need to do research. That's a luxury journalists don't have. But I can tell you the, the importance of it, beyond it being nice as a writer to have that luxury, the importance of it was immediately evident because I worked on the book for years, but there were, it was in fits and starts. I'd do a lot of research and then I would stop, sometimes for a year. I just put the put the whole project down. The times I really felt like I made breakthroughs were often after I'd put it down and came back to it. Mm. Almost, and it happens throughout the book. There are times where uh, I've done research, I've done interviews, and I think I've found a conclusion, either around the murder, like I, I have suspects for who I think did it, and then I put it down. I come back a couple of years later and say, wait a minute, <laughs> I'm reading everything again, except now it's been a while. I'm going back over basically a cold case and light bulbs are going off. I'm like, wait, I didn't notice this the first time around. This is suspicious. This is gonna lead me down a different path. And there are a few different times in the book where I come to one conclusion. And then after a sort of fallow period, when I come back to it, I see it much more clearly. Hmm. And if I'd had to turn in this book as soon as I finished the research with sort of my initial conclusions, uh, I wouldn't have been where I am now. I wouldn't have reached the conclusions. I wouldn't have had the time to go back and question things I thought I'd resolved and sort of unresolve them and then really resolve them with confidence. Uh, I would have had sort of hypotheses based on some research and a little bit of time, but really having the luxury of no deadline meant I could look at things a second time and a third time and a hundredth time. And often it took a while looking at the exact same things to come up with what I thought were the right answers. And that's, and that's why I love books because, because, yeah. because there's a bunch of us delusional people who actually think that someone's going to read it, but we put a, so much time into it. And then that, and then when we, you know, I just, I'd rather crack a book than crack a computer screen or a newspaper any day. Yeah. And I, and I feel like, there's, you know, even if even if it's not um, based on fact, even if it's fiction, there's, there's just there's always some truth in there. There's, so, yeah. you know, for the most part, I mean, a lot of times there's not. But, for you know, for the writers that I enjoy, it's just like, oh, they're 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 talking about the human condition. Right. Uh, even if I haven't been through something, I get it because I have my blank tragedies that I can pull and move into this. Right it it's uh yeah it's good fun i mean that that's why I, that's why i'll always come back to books and going to the library and it, you know if it happens in my lifetime where libraries take out hard copies of books i don't know what i'm gonna do <laughs> I, I i i they stopped giving um in los angeles county they stopped doing late fees for books um, okay. And I'm always late and I'm always, I'm always, you know, I was always, I, I still use the library often and I always have late fees and I'm like happy to give them. I lose a book. I'm happy to pay the administrative fee and the book. Thank you. So all I do is go, thank you so much. Cause this is better than a parking ticket and it's going to you. Right. <laughs> you know, it's right. like, and I keep, and as I'm just talking now, I really need to put a monthly donation together for the library because I don't give them late fees anymore. Um, right. it's, uh, 
I want them to stay alive. <laughs> I want the hard copy. I agree. <laughs> what uh, <clears throat> you got into journalism at 18. What, what was it? How fantastic is it that you found your calling at that young? Oh my God. And then yeah. it, it's like, how did you know? So when I was 18, I start, I, I was always very into music. I was one of those crazy what bands. Wait, wait, wait. Well, I, I, I was growing up in the 80s, so it was a lot of new waves. So, uh-huh. Depeche Mode, Cure, New Order, The Smiths. Um, You've named like three like, out of four bands I've seen live more than once. <laughs> and that was sort of my, was my that was my niche. Yeah. Uh, and when I was 18, I wrote a review. I grew up outside DC. I wrote a review for the gay newspaper uh, in DC. My then boyfriend, now husband, 33 years later. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, and you found it. and you found your soulmate at the yeah. same time. Very okay. important. Okay, I'm gonna implode over here. Yeah. <laughs> keep yeah. going. I'm gonna keep going. So he it was he was the editor, was the arts editor of that newspaper. This is back in 1989. And he had said to me, We have no one covering pop music. Do you want to write a review? I said, sure. And I wrote a review, and that was my first published piece. I was 18. And what do you remember who you reviewed? It was a dual review. It was uh, Erasure's Wild uh-huh. and Liza Minnelli's Results. Wow, okay. The album the Pet Shop Boys produced for her. Cool. And was that a good record because the Pet Shop Boys produced it? You no, know, it it's actually kind of a mixed bag. Okay. I, I like Liza Minnelli, and I like the Pet Shop Boys. The two of them together, half the time it works. Uh-huh. And the other half of the time you're going, I kind of wish this was either Liza Minnelli without them or them without her. Oh, but yeah, yeah. Anyway, that was... And, and do, you still, do you still have the print copy? I still have the tear sheet in my yeah. clock. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. But keep going. I'm loving this. <laughs> um, so I, I was a little uncomfortable, though, as an 18-year-old writing for my boyfriend. It seemed a little nepotistic. But I went to the holiday party for the newspaper that year, and the publisher came up to me and said, I hope you'll keep writing about music. And I huh. said, oh, okay. So I did. And I became, uh, I started reviewing pop music for them. And that turned into doing interviews about music for them. Uh-huh. And that turned into interviews about film and then books and then theater. And it sort of grew. And then I became a columnist for them covering media. Um, and then I became an editor when they launched a paper in New York City in 1997. And that's when I started my career as an editor. Uh, I was in graduate school and I, I left to, I took, a, I took a year off. It's been now 25 years. Uh-huh. I took a year off in 1997 to go help launch the New York Blade. And after a year, I went back to my graduate school advisor at NYU. And I said, the reason I was hoping to get a doctorate was so that I could someday get the job that I so i don't think i'm coming back and i never did i had finished my coursework i was into preparation for my dissertation and i just left wow Uh, and never looked back and so i've been a journalist since then and then eventually wound up writing i I became an editor of billboard which was like my dream as a kid Um, editing music journalism full-time turned out not to be a fun job but it was my dream job right uh, and and, and, and what, in what ways wasn't it fun? Uh, it was it was a challenging place. Uh, just on a personal level, we had some difficult um, 
management issues. Let's just <laughs> asshole bosses. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> uh, I will say that my coworkers were a, a tremendous, really outstanding bunch of very smart people who cared mm-hmm. a lot about music. And I'm still in contact with many of them. Um, and the interesting part about working there is everyone came in with their own musical tastes and their own musical preferences. But as opposed to high school, where you sort of divide it up along lines, oh, you like that band, then you're this kind of person. I like uh-huh. this band, you can't be friends. Um, working at Billboard, it was more like, oh, you like that kind of music? Show me what's interesting about it. And even if I don't also like it, at least I'll understand it. And so we had people who introduced me to a lot of different kinds of music, many of which I don't listen to, but some of which I picked up. Um, I mean, we had a, a, our Latin music editor in Miami. I was editing a lot of her, I was editing her stories every day. And I remember occasionally coming across a band where I'd say, this just sounds really interesting. Could you like send me their CD? And I suddenly got into like alternative Latin music. because. Mm-hmm. I would never have even known about it, except I was editing these stories and said, that sounds interesting. I want to hear that. Yeah. Um, that was the great part of working at Billboard was that. And the, and the access you must have had being in New York, just going to see every great band that you would want to. It was amazing. And, and even, you know, the, the best memories I have, yes, you, you got to see the bands that you loved um, and maybe you got to interview them as well, or occasionally go in the studio uh, wow, which was yeah, really terrific. But even more so were the the smaller moments. I, I mean, probably my best memory of from Billboard along those lines. I had gone to see, gosh, you know, I'm not even going to remember who. I think it was. I think I was seeing Dave Hall, who's a local musician who I like. Um, at the bottom line, I think it was Dave. Dave, if it wasn't you, I apologize because I know I've seen him perform there. But I, I went to see him and um, something had happened that night. I forget if it was bad weather. There was just no, really no crowd. And there was an opening act who no one had come to see. And it was Sarah Jane Morris. And I'm sitting there going, Sarah Jane Morris, she sang back up on Don't Leave Me This Way by the Communards. I'm one of four people in the audience. I happen to be a billboard editor. I said, what's ever happened to her? What's she doing? So I set up an interview with her. She was in New York meeting with record labels. And then that week was September 11th and all of her meetings were called off, obviously. Yeah. And I wound up running the piece, I wanna say a month or two later, maybe it was October or November, I ran an interview with her because she was working on an album that was spectacular, absolutely spectacular. And the article wound up helping her land a deal to get a distributor in the US. Uh, I think I'm the only person who covered it, or maybe, I think maybe WFUV in New Jersey on the radio also covered it, but really she was here taking meetings over 9-11, playing opening act at the bottom line in New York. It was really, she had no traction in the States. And the fact that I could help her land a deal for what I think was a great album for someone who I admired for years that was more exciting than saying, well, I also got to interview, you know, Dave gone from the, from Depeche Mode and I interviewed the Pet Shop Boys and I interviewed Soft Cell. Those are tremendous moments in my life, but in many ways, helping Sarah Jane Morris land a record deal, any role I possibly played in that, that's a highlight of my time at Billboard. 
I love that. And also the importance of even being an opening act where there's where nobody's there yet. You know, they, it's, uh, I think there, that's not just in music. That's in so many things. It may not seem like you're making a, um, a dent, you know, it may, it may, you know, it's, I know, I know people, I know authors who are, you know, I'm huge fans of who've read in San Francisco to nobody when they show up on that day. Uh, I, I, when I, I did a, I did a full page profile on um, Larry Doyle. He wrote, I love you, Beth Cooper. I wrote that in the Chronicle and <clears throat> uh, for his upcoming reading. And then when he came back through San Francisco, we were having lunch. I asked him how many people showed up. He said, zero, <laughs> you got a full page in the Chronicle, but nobody showed up. But at the same time, if he wasn't coming to San Francisco for the event, I would have never been able to profile him. Exactly. I, they would have gotten somebody else who was coming to San Francisco. So there's so many things that move around where, yeah, it looks like there's zero in the audience, but you're making an impact somehow to the how many ever hundreds of thousands or readers that were uh, that actually flipped to that page on that day at the time that, you know, they may not, they may have not even made any action, but they're in the back of their mind. There's a little loyal. Um, oh, now I forgot his name. <laughs> I, I'm forgetful. Um, Doyle's I, I, I can't remember his first name now, but um, thank you. <laughs> but, uh, but it, it's in the back of their minds where he comes out with another book and they, and they'll pull that one off the shelf. And then that might, that book might change their lives. You know, it's that how everything connects that's when we should still be showing up when it looks like they're zero. You know, even as an author, I remember I, it was a couple books ago. I had gone to do a date in Miami uh, at a bookstore, books and books on Lincoln Road Mall, which is a great store. And I also had an event in Lauderdale. I got to see some friends, you know, it's not such a hard luck station to be in South Florida promoting a book. And I walked into Books and Books for my event and they looked at me like, who are you? I said, I'm up and I have an event here tonight. They had forgotten that I had an event. My, the Miami Book Fair had just ended and they were so oh, focused on that. They had just plum forgotten. Yeah. The staff had forgotten. <laughs> they hadn't publicized it. There were zero people. Not a single person came. And I'm sitting there at first going, first of all, a little pissed. And second of all, depressed, like to be an author sitting in front of an empty room and you know, no one's coming. It's not that they're late. No one's coming because the store forgot, like nothing's going to happen. Uh, it was not a shining moment. I get back to New York and I see the next week, Miami is my top selling market the next week. I said, what the hell happened? Well, while I was in the store, they had ordered the book they just forgot they had a case of the book. While I was there, I signed their stock and they put it on their front counter saying autographed copies and all the copies sold that week. So it wound up being a very fruitful event in retrospect a week later, except during the event, it was really, really depressing. Yeah. It turned out well. I wouldn't have planned it that way, but believe me, I wouldn't have planned it that way, but it did turn out for the best. I love that story. Yeah. And it's, <clears throat> I, I, I've been through, I, you know, I've been through that where um, I, I'm upset that they didn't promote something. Someone didn't promote something well when I show up or whatever. And now I'm just to the point where I'm like, 
hey guys, well, I'll just ha- I'll just hang out with you then. It's that it, because something good always happens. It's yeah. just weird. It, it's it's weird that almost just like showing up, something good will happen even yeah. if there's nobody. <clears throat> and maybe that's what those guys in shopping carts are doing. They're showing up and screaming at the sky, and something they may be, they may be sinking into something we don't even know. Entirely possible. <laughs> um yeah oh i had to bring it there probably not i don't know uh well i was gonna ask you so um you know okay so going back to depeche mode like it wasn't until the last two years that i didn't know vincent is it vincent he wrote all he's the writer he writes all the music and the lyrics it wasn't dave and and later martin gore but yeah vince i followed from depeche mode to yaz to erasure to his own little side projects with Martin Gore, which wow, were kind of terrific and yeah. flew underneath the radar. I, it was very exciting to get to interview, I think it was Dave Gone when he put out Paper Gods, Paper, no, Paper Monsters, Paper Gods is, is uh, Duran Duran, Paper Monsters many years ago. And um, that was sort of a, a treat. I mean, the the benefits of being a journalist writing about your heroes is that you actually get to talk to them. You know, when I was in graduate school even, uh, I was already a journalist, but I was in graduate school at NYU and I was doing a class project on a disco. And uh, homophobia and, uh, around uh, around disco and the anti-disco movement, et cetera, et cetera. And Donna Summer was one of the people, I was in a, this group, Donna Summer was gonna be the focus of one of the pieces of what we were researching. and. Everyone's talking about, well, we should read this book. We should read this theorist. We should reference this other thing. And I said, also, we could just call her. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? I said, why don't we call her? She's at this point, she's alive. We could yeah. just call her and ask her questions. This had never occurred to the academics in my group. It was only as a journalist. I thought, well, if we want to know answers to questions, why don't we just call her and ask her? Yeah. So I called her her label and set up an interview also pitched a piece that went up running in the Boston Phoenix so that I had sort of an excuse to talk to her. <laughs> yes. But I came home from class one day. This is back in the, day, the age of answering machines. This is in the mid nineties, I guess, like 94 or so. Uh, I come home from class to the room I'm renting in someone else's apartment as a grad student. And I press the play on my answering machine and I hear, hi Wayne, this is Donna. Donna Summer calling. <laughs> went, right, this is why I do this. This is why journalism this is the place I want to be. Yeah. Did you save that? Did you save that recording? I do. I have all of those, the tapes that I interviewed people on. There is a twofold challenge. One, I don't have a recorder that plays them anymore. Right. And, and two, I think they've all faded because the last time I tried, I borrowed a recorder that would play them. The sound is almost gone. Oh, uh, my God. Yeah. Transfer them to anything else. And it wasn't yeah. like I had, you know, a, a climate controlled storage room. They were sitting in the bottom of a shoebox. Right. Years. I, I have the same dilemma as well. I used to <laughs> I used to I used to be so jank. I had um, I had a really expensive camera like around 1999. The three chip, you know, Sony, you know, back in those days where uh, and I didn't have a recorder. So I would use mini DV. And I, and I put a microphone into my video camera and okay. that's, and that's how I used to record just like this, this show, as well as record interviews for the uh, newspapers and magazines. And I have so many mini DVs that 
of, of all this footage that I don't, I'm like, I don't have a mini DV player, but I'm keeping them. But man, I really got to get them transferred because there's right. one, there's gems on there. And two, um, I listen to old tapes of me, like from 15 years ago, and I'm utterly horrified and embarrassed that the person just didn't get up and walk out. <laughs> I'm like, how can I? that that's like that's such an in, inarticulate fellow who's all he doesn't know what he's doing how are you staying there um i don't know if you've ever had that experience where it's just like oh man they know they know i'm a fool i want to go back <laughs> so dave gahan who who else did you like did you get to meet where it was just I mean, well what you got donna summer on the answering machine what am i even talking about that's great <laughs> that was great. I interviewed Madonna once upon a time. Oh no way! When was that? Ozzy Osbourne. Was Madonna still in New York? She was. I th- I think no. I think she had already moved to England. Mm-hmm. She was back doing press for. Uh, what was the movie she did with Rupert Everett? The next best thing. Mm-hmm. So I met her then. Yeah. Uh, you know, it wasn't like we had a a long meeting. I was at a a, a press event yeah you know chatted with her for a few minutes and had my recorder out yeah exciting to get to meet her yeah you you try not to get jaded Um, right but it's fun it's fun it's really fun i I had waited with um mark gallman of soft cell was an idol when i was growing up i had his Uh picture all over my walls and the first time i interviewed him was in person at the gramercy hotel in new york and i waited until the end of our interview to tell him well you know really i had your picture hanging over my bed all through high school my senior quote in my high school yearbook was you and i sort of just let it all spill out and he you know puts his drink down and sort of scoots back in his chair like oh okay maybe it's this move from a little bit from journalist to stalker but you know he stayed cool but i could tell it was maybe i had revealed a little too much fandom what's it Uh, what and and what's interesting is when you told him, so he was, when he was talking with you, he was talking with the journalist and then, then there was a shift. So yes. then he, and it's, and it's, I, I don't know if, you know, I mean, stalker might be, you know, it was weird that you probably sat on his lap and put your arms around him. <laughs> that, 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 you know, that would, that would feel, you know, I, I'd be like, I'd be a little put off too, and then try to yeah. understand how the shift in conversation happened. But, um, but it, but it's interesting that um, I think just in human behavior, uh situations where if you know we're presented a certain way and then but there's a, something else if someone doesn't know who we are it's, it could be a little jarring you know it's, yes it and that's like why a- you know after, after all these years of interviewing journalists going back and trying to inter- uh, interviewing celebrities interviewing artists going back and trying to interview your own family is a very different thing uh, it's uh, because you're personally invested in the story in a way that you're not as a journalist. I mean, I care whether Depeche Mode's latest album is good, but if it's not, it doesn't really affect my life. Right, uh, right. But interviewing, you know, my aunt or cousins or my siblings or my my own father, um, it's different. It's different. You want to push them to reveal things, but you don't want to be alienating to them in a way that you could afford to if it was a stranger, but these aren't strangers. It's very different. Yeah. Did they, after you interviewed them, did they they kind of see you in a different way? Cause they never saw the journalist party. You maybe they never saw it from that angle. 
some and and the um i mean certainly i think i've never interviewed my family before although i did interview my mother thankfully many years ago uh, for a story i'd written for an anthology uh called mama's boy gay men write about their mothers i was writing about coming out to my mother and realized oh i don't know how she felt when this happened i actually mm. i guess we never discussed it and so i interviewed her and turned turned the story into a dialogue between the two of us so i'd interviewed her 25 years ago i'd never interviewed the rest of my family hmm. the challenge though particularly since a lot of uh, with my my immediate family i was interviewing them about my mother's alzheimer's with the distant cousins i'd met i was interviewing them about broader family history and the the mystery surrounding my great-grandmother's murder to find out what people knew and there's a the danger there which is as a family member even though often there are people i didn't know beforehand or sometimes i never heard of um i want to find out what they know as a as an interviewer but i also want to tell them what i know as a cousin like we're in this together except yeah. it's important that i not tell them what i've discovered until i find out what they already know because once they once you tell them what you've learned in your research, that becomes part of their story too. And they don't remember that that's not what they knew a month ago or a week ago or an hour ago. They, they think they always knew that, but they didn't. It's challenging. You have to get them to be open, but also sort of uncontaminated by you. When you talk to them for the first time, you want to get what they know without ruining it. Interesting. By telling them what you know. Yeah. Um, so at a certain point, you tell them what you know, and now they know it too, which means you can't really have a follow-up call. Um, you, can't, you can't say, well, remember, you didn't know about this thing until I told you. So what did you know again? Because by now they've incorporated what you told them into their story and their history has changed. You need mm. to get people, they are a little bit naive in terms of what the past is. You need yeah. to get first reaction. Uh, and that's very, very challenging. Huh. Makes sense. It's it's like when it's like when you see how, uh, you know they're like when we, it's like how far do our memories go back as adults? Like how you know like kind of like what's your earliest memory? And I I feel like I have a lot of early memories, but I don't know if they're actually memories where I saw a photo of myself at a certain exactly. age that was a couple years earlier. So that's the memory. That's the story that uh, that's coming in. Right. You don't know. And a lot of people I talk to. You know, almost, I talked to 20-some cousins around the world, and they all told me pretty much the same thing right off the bat. Said, I really don't know much. And it's true. There was no person who knew a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, but most of them, let's say on average, knew three things. They were almost never duplicates. Wow. So really, after talking to 20 people who knew three things, you know 60 things. Yeah. That's a lot. And yeah. some of them are minor, minor details. Um, like there's a, a, a woman who's my second cousin. So she's younger than I am. And she's my generation. She's the only person who knew, oh, I heard my grandmother told me that when, they, when the family lived in Saskatchewan, they had a player piano. No one else had told me that. Is it really important to the story? No, but it's a great detail. They had a player piano. It indicates something about who they were, 
what their socioeconomic status was. They had a player piano. Also, it sort of gives you a sense of the time that mm -hmm. you have these people living as cowboys, as cattle ranchers out in the prairies of Saskatchewan come home and listen to the player piano, like really paints a picture. Um, and she had heard, oh, my grandmother told me that when they lived in Saskatchewan, they didn't have running water and they used to bathe in a basin, like in the in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay, that's also not, not a clue to the murder, but it really, if you want to paint a narrative as a nonfiction writer, my, my goal was not to make things up. I tried not to make anything up. Um, this wasn't a reenactment or a simulation. I only included things that I had factual backup for, either from a document or from someone's memory. Uh, that's all. But that's a lot. And that's why it's important to, to interview as many people as possible, because even if everyone only knows a few things, that's a lot of things collectively when you put them together. It's really a lot of information. It's almost like being a detective, or it is like being yes, a detective. It is like being a detective. And yeah. the, the danger is to stop when you think you figured it out and say, I don't want to know anymore. I think I have a theory. You got to keep going because your, your theories might unravel, and mine, mine did repeatedly. I had theories and then they came crashing down. So really, and, and even some of the cousins I found and I would ask them about the murder, some of them knew nothing about the murder and others knew a little bit or they'd heard inklings of a story. Some had found um, or had been handed down a newspaper story. Now, the murder of my great-grandmother made headlines across Canada, dozens of stories from Montreal to Toronto to Vancouver in English and Yiddish newspapers. It was big news. So I remember one cousin had one story. It was the first story that came out in one newspaper the day of the murder. She said, so I know all about what happened. I said, well, it's kind of true, except that by the next day, everything that was reported the first day had fallen apart. So if you stopped after you've read the first story, you actually don't know what happened. You have to read all the stories to see what the police thought happened, then how they realized that's not what happened, then what they secondarily thought might be the case, and then the third thing they thought might be the case, and the fourth thing, and then watch the case unravel and go unsolved for a century. You have to watch the whole thing. You can't just take one story and say, now I know the answers, because you don't. Turns out you don't. Yeah, huh. That's the importance of, of doing endless research, not yeah. just just enough research but doing a lot of research and the beauty of how a uh, beauty of not having a deadline of turning something around so fast That's absolutely i mean yeah. in, in winnipeg at the time at the time of the murder there were three daily newspapers and a weekly yiddish newspaper which of is the, probably more than now in print oh yeah absolutely. <laughs> when, when i found the one of the newspapers is still in print today the free press mm. is still the big newspaper in winnipeg uh-huh so finding their archives was relatively easy because they, it still exists. I could go online and look through their archives and it wasn't that hard. The other two, one had folded decades ago and the other many decades ago. And I, I want, the first one I, I found, I thought I could find it, but I didn't know where. And it took a few years. And then I did find it was in a library. Yeah. Um, I did find it. The third had been defunct so long, I was certain I would never ever find it and it wasn't even worth trying. And then I had read someone else's history book about Winnipeg and it quoted that newspaper once. And I said, I have to contact that author. 
and find out how you got that quote from that newspaper that I'm sure is nowhere to be found. And he said, oh no, it is. It's on microfilm in like a law library in Manitoba. I hired a researcher. I'd been to Manitoba twice, but I hired uh -huh. someone to go look through it for me. And sure enough, there were the records. I, I didn't even, that wasn't even a quest. I thought that was a dead duck. Uh, and it turned out it wasn't. Uh, so it really had, I, I would never have even, if I had stopped before then, I wouldn't have said, well, I couldn't find the third paper's archives. I would have said they don't exist, except it turns out they did. I didn't know that for years into my research that it did exist. It was still there. I just didn't know where it was. And it was at a library. The library. And a oh, library. libraries to the end of time. Let's go. I needed someone to go like on microfilm machines and, and look <laughs> in this haystack yeah. stories. Yeah. And it's, and it's important that that stuff's still out there, you know, because yes. I, I don't think people understand what, how much is not online. And also like, even with music, how much is not available online where I have no. records where you're, uh, I have, you know, I have bands. I'm like, oh yeah, you're never going to find this online. It's not on a streaming service and it's out of print. It's, and, and you know, one of the things that when I was researching stuff in newspapers, I mean, I'm a journalist. I know how this works. I've worked in mm -hmm. print and online. If these things had been uh, just digitized, the stories had been digitized the way we do now, I would have found the stories I was looking for. I, I would have found the text of those stories, which is very, very useful. It's, it's, it's an essential resource. What I would have missed that you could only get by looking at a microfilm or a, a print reproduction of the entire newspaper is what else was in the newspaper that day, which is, first of all, very interesting and gives you a sense of time and place, but also, the ads, there was, there was a whole period where I sat back with all these newspapers. I had been looking at the newspapers, just reading the articles that were about the murder. And I stepped back and said, actually, you know, the ads that are on these pages are interesting too, because they give you a sense of what was happening in the city at the time. Look, this is how much a bicycle cost. This is how much people were paying for leather shoes. This is where people were traveling to because you could see where train tickets were being sold to. This is how much real estate was selling for. This is where, what neighborhood had just opened up to have plots of land sold to build houses on. This is what kind of uh, toothpaste people were buying. You really could get a sense from the sort of the ephemera on a print page that if I had only found a digitized archive, I never, it'd be completely inaccessible. No one digitizes the ads. Yeah. That's interesting. That's part of the local history. And it really helped flesh out you know, a sense of what was happening in 1913 around the time of the murder in Winnipeg to see what was happening in the city. It wasn't just about what the headline was about my great-grandmother's murder. It was about the whole city and what people in the city were doing and cared about and what they could buy and where they could go and what they read. And what sports teams there were and who was selling what car and how much yeah. was rent. It, it, yeah, that's yeah. that's yeah, that makes so much sense because it's like uh, you know I, I people I'll be like oh wait did I interview that person and I'll do a search and find it online and I see the article from the you know from the Chronicle website or for uh, I um or you know where, wherever I wrote for it. and then but it's not a picture of what the newspaper was that day right it's not there's a lot missing yeah and that does matter I mean. Like the Winnipeg in 1913 was 
really starting to boom. It was in the middle of a boom decade, but it was also still relatively small, like 100,000 people, 150,000 people. It wasn't a huge metropolis yet, but it was growing incredibly fast. So you had a, the major dailies were simultaneously covering major world events like revolution in Venezuela, this happening in Cuba, this happening in China. They had major international headlines next to think some of the headlines I've heard in the book because they were just too great. One was drowning man saved by moose. <laughs> this is on the front page of the paper, yeah. right next to story about international revolution because those were equally important in Winnipeg in 1913 was Yes, it mattered what was happening in Venezuela, and it mattered that a drowning man was saved by a moose. Yeah. Or what day chicken shooting starts across Manitoba. That was on the front <laughs> page, because <laughs> chickens in Manitoba, you needed to know when it was chicken hunting season. I, 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 got my, I got my bow and arrow ready, but I can't do it until Thursday. Right. <laughs> I want to go shoot that chicken. I mean, these are things that really, when you just look at the stories, you miss the context, and the context is fascinating. Yeah. You don't go to the you don't go to the grocery store and just pick up the uh, the hormone injected <laughs> antibiotic chicken. You actually just go get. You have to go. You have to go out there and do the hard work. Right, you have to do it the right day. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I just it, 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 I think I I don't know. I feel like as as humanity, we kind of just gloat with all our technical prowess now. But man, there's something so sexy about days like that where like you go, everything just goes back to what we are as humans. We got to eat. We got to sleep. We need a place to go to the bathroom. It just there's and it's not like we need an iPhone to do it, <laughs> except kind of no. now we do. Sometimes, yes. <laughs> I need to have my iPhone with my Venmo in order to use the bathroom at this. Just, right, right. <laughs> But it's human in the end is it's, you know, we're not in some great place where there's there's it's we've there's been so many other years before us and centuries. And it's, you know, but one thing I love that stays, that's the through line is storytelling, even back to a campfire, it's it, even back to a newspaper. Everything is what's the story about blank? What's I want to know about the guy who was saved by a moose. I might know that guy. And I think I've seen that moose around. This is one of the things that that struck me so much and made me want to write the story is that my mother was a great storyteller. First of all, she had a, a very sharp memory until Alzheimer's robbed her of it. But she was also hilarious, like really, really funny woman. Um. And I realized she was such a good storyteller that when people had were her friends or her children or just people meeting her, business associates of my dad's who would meet her for the 12th time, they would specifically ask her to retell stories they'd already heard. And it's something that we do all the time with TV shows, records, movies, we rewatch books, we reread, we rewatch, we watch old sitcoms we loved, we listen to albums we loved a long time ago that we've heard a million times. Like we don't need to hear them again, but we want to. We want to hear them again and again. We don't usually think of stories telling the same way because there's so many times when, yeah, you can think of a million examples. A friend of yours starts to tell you a story and you say, yeah, 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 you already told me that. Like I know that already. But if you tell a story well enough, that really doesn't matter. People will want to hear it again. Not only will they tolerate you telling again, 
but I learned with my mother, they will specifically ask you to tell it again. It'd be like when you go to see a favorite band play and you ask them to play your favorite song again. Yeah. You've heard it, you know it, but you want to hear it again because you like the way they do it and you want to hear it to see, will they do it exactly the same way they did it last time because that was so perfect or will they do it a whole different way and that would be neat too. Will there be a different spin on it? Will it be better than I remember? Worse than I remember? Did I forget whole chunks of it? And people would ask my mother to tell those stories again. And it wasn't like one or two people humoring her. She was great at it. Yeah. And I wanted to sort of get that storytelling first out of her and then about her with the book because that's, that's what I believe she'll be remembered for is her skills as a storyteller, which are not to be underestimated. Really, not not today. There's no fancy gimmick. There are no bells and whistles. She didn't have, you know, a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> um, she didn't have a soundtrack. She didn't do a TikTok. Yeah. She was just funny and knew how to tell a story. Yeah, and that and that um, that organic storytelling with 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 the PowerPoint presentation just cracked me up because I know so many. I, I also teach screenwriting. I know so many instructors who have PowerPoint presentations on their lectures and it drives me crazy because it's sure. I'm like, no, we're not going to hold on to this. I'm going to throw these ideas out there and I want you to agree or disagree with me. And then the conversation can start with the class and they can hit me with questions that I go, Oh wow. I haven't thought in that way before. So PowerPoint, I just, it's so constraining and it doesn't, it, it doesn't leave room for the openness of the discussion in a classroom setting, which is and and the and people actually want the PowerPoint presentations. Students get confused when you're not sitting there going chick chick and chick <laughs> It's like anyway. There's it's and, and that just it's you know we are great storytellers. Four hundred years ago, yeah, you know what they had TikTok, but they just showed up to someone's place and said, right. "Look, I got some Guinness." Right. And uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna TikTok right. you people. <laughs> for six seconds, right? Oh man! Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, Wayne. My pleasure. Wayne Hoffman on Drinks with Tony. Check out his new book, The End of Her: Racing Against Alzheimer's to Solve a Murder. Next week on the show, we have Lynn Hightower. Her new book is called The Enlightenment Project. Thanks for listening, and continue to read books. That's that's where we get our story. That's where we get the guts. That's where everything is. I'll see you next week. Reach out, touch space.
1.9 FM KPCR LP Santa Cruz.